It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 17. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Greg Garbos. Greg brings his training and experience in conventional engineering to his work as a small farmer and with small farmers. He's the owner and co-founder of Four Season Tools, which is a greenhouse and horticulture supply company that also provides farm design consulting. He's also the owner and founder of City Bitty Farm, a grower of microgreens for Kansas City area restaurants. Greg and I dig into using intentional decision-making as a basis for developing a farm around sound principles. We talk a little bit about record keeping, and we really just kind of look at this whole idea of how do you build a profitable farm. I think it's a really fun episode. I really enjoyed my interview with Greg, and I think you will too. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Osborne Seed Company, founded by seed professionals and dedicated to serving professionals professional growers of all scales. Osborne Seed provides quality seeds, excellent customer service, and a fantastic selection. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Good morning, Greg, and welcome to the podcast. Chris Blanchard, what a pleasure. It's so great. It's so great to have you here. I really appreciate your making time. It, it doesn't show up in when, when people get this in their feeds, but we're actually recording this on a Sunday morning. And so I just want to say, you know, I really appreciate your being flexible and working around all the things that we both got going on to make this happen this morning. Thank you very, very much. Well, Chris, as a farmer, you know, the Sunday mornings commonly are work days. So. Yes, I know. I know. So Greg, you've got you've got your fingers in a lot of different pots. Um, you know, you've got the, you you're the, the owner and founder of city bitty microgreens farm. Um, you're, you're also one of the founders and, and, and you're the owner of, of uh, four season tools, which is a, a greenhouse and farm supply company. And you guys also do farm design and consulting. Can you kind of flesh out the picture of, of what you've got going on in your various businesses right now for us? Well, it's funny. I think that it, uh, I do have my hands in a lot of different pots, but I think the reality is it's all, you know, it's all very intertwined in, in the mission that we're trying to do. I personally have a passion for skill-based service is what I like to call it. So, uh, taking whatever talents and resources you have and trying to make the most difference you could with them. And it's been a lifelong quest of mine through kind of finding my career, uh, in that space. So my dad used to be an aerospace engineer and my mom was a, a minister. So I was, you know, kind of had a sharp analytical mind, but a desire to do something useful with it uh, in the world. And uh, it's something I just took very seriously at an, at an early age. So, you know, trying, trying different things is just, you know, as an engineer, you know, and being schooled as a mechanical engineer, uh, I've, I've had different opportunities and how to do service, you know? So if I was a hairdresser rather than go and swing a hammer for Habitat for Humanity, which is a great organization, but you know, that person better serve maybe doing, you know, doing the hair for underprivileged girls for their problems. Right. And uh, so spending time in corporate America doing fuel cell research and green building and weatherization of homes and all these different things. When I found food, what was amazing is, is the other kind of philosophy that I now live my life by. And that's the, the sphere of influence that I can have. So as one individual. I have the opportunity to make a lot of difference in this space. And one of the wonderful things about agriculture, particularly sustainable agriculture, particularly small scale sustainable agriculture, is such a small and specific industry. And this industry is going to grow, you know, several orders of magnitude and still only be a tenth of a percent of the big guys. And I think that, you know, the enterprises that I find myself in are all kind of tied around the fact that uh, I want to change the way that we grow food and I want to change the technology and systems and 
systems thinking that we have in how we grow our food in a sustainable way. So I didn't answer your question specifically, but uh, I think that that's what, you know, holistically I do is I try to, you know, hands-on experiment, design, and then implement farming solutions to make uh, sustainable agriculture a reality and an economic reality for people. I really like that. I really like that idea of, of using your what you called your sphere of influence and your, and, and the skills that you've got. I really think, I think that's a real motivator for a lot of folks that have gotten into the, the food and farming business in recent years is that it is, it's a matter of saying, you know, what can I actually do? You know, how can I very practically implement some of these bigger philosophical ideas? And I really, I, I think that's great. So tell me about, uh, tell us about four season tools. How, how did you get started in that, in that business. And now for, and, and again, if, if just to be clear, four season tools is a, is a greenhouse manufacturing and, and engineering company. And you guys also do farm supplies for small, uh, small market farmers. And you guys also do this farm design and consulting piece. How did you, how did you end up there? Well, so, you know, going back to kind of, kind of my history, I ended up going to, going to Duke in North Carolina and um, for undergrad and grad school. And I ended up graduating with both degrees in four years. So I was kind of in this weird place in my life where where I had a lot of opportunities in front of me. So I looked at things like Dean Kamen from Decker Research and had a job offer from GE Medical. And I ended up taking a job at uh, Sustainable Mobility Technologies, which was Ford's hydrogen fuel cell research division. So I went out there and kind of played corporate America for a little while and realized how difficult it is to do skill-based service in a large, large corporation. Um, as part of my employment contract, I was actually able to negotiate that I had every Friday off to do community service for the company. And I don't, looking back on it, I still can't believe that I was able to do that. But even with that, literally 20% of my time, I was spending trying to leverage forward to do community service. Um, it was just so hard to actually really get anything real done. You know, and us people who are in farming, lots of times are are goal oriented people, are driven, you know, driven by success and driven by, you know, actually getting things accomplished. And I'm definitely one of those people. So through that philanthropy, I was actually able to um, design some vehicles for people with disabilities. And through that, was actually able to get introduced to a, a team of venture capitalists that were uh, down in Atlanta, Atlanta Georgia. And uh, so some philanthropy that I did at Ford actually was ended, it was actually what ended up opening the doors for me to kind of uh, get into, um, I guess, entrepreneurship or owning my own business, right? It, you know, allowed me to step up my, you know, cash in my chips in life to get to a point where I was actually able to to work for myself as opposed to other people, if that makes any sense. And, you know, through that transition, the the gentleman that I worked for, I ran a $10 million technical sales company for these guys. And, uh, they, they know who they knew Elliot Coleman and, uh, and said, you know, Hey, there's this guy in Maine and he's got these rakes and these shovels and these hoes that make farming better. And we want you to go up there and look at it. So I went up there with uh, two of my friends from Duke, a PhD mechanical engineer and an environmental science person. And, and we went up there and it was the first vegetable farm I ever stepped on in my entire life. You know, I grew up in Southern New Hampshire. It wasn't that far from where I grew up, about five hours East. And I met a really nice guy named Elliot and Barbara cooked this large lobster. It was a wonderful experience, but I had no idea who they were, you know? So I came back to Kansas city and said, you know, as part of my own due diligence, sorry, 
started going to like local food, you know, events and things like that. And, and I met a gentleman by the name of Ted Carey, who's was very instrumental in my career. And uh, Ted's the guy who created HighTunnels.org. Um, you know, one of the guys who's really been involved in pushing season extension in high tunnels in the Midwest. And uh, he was out of K-State University and basically built the high tunnel program at the Olathe Research Center. And he was like, anyways, he bumps into me and he's just like, he did what? You know, you have no idea. You know, he's like, Elliot Coleman, you know who that is? I'm like, no, he's a really, really nice guy. He's like, no, 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 he's the Elliot Coleman. And I was like, what? You know, so like I had no concept. And then he invited me out to his place the next day. And then the, ne- the third farm I was on was a, uh, Cultivate Kansas City, which is now one of the top urban farming ag nonprofits in the country, and met Catherine Kelly and Daniel Dermitzel. And Daniel had built some movable, homemade movable high tunnels from uh, in the 80s based on you know, Elliot's first first writings in the New Organic Grower. And it started to kind of click for me that maybe this is something that is that is worth pursuing. So what's interesting is that even though my career was going in a very positive direction, what what the lateral step that happened for me to farming had more to do with the fact of me sticking with that philanthropy because it was the philanthropy that I had done in my career that actually allowed me to make this transition more than the professional, the typical professional aspect of my career. And so, so from there, you, you saw this need for, for mobile high tunnels. That's really where four season tools got, got its start, right? Well, I think we, we got to do a consulting project for, um, or we're looking at a consulting project for, for a woman, uh, named Ann Willoughby, a really amazing brand identity and graphic design, uh, person in Kansas city. And, uh, she had this property and, uh, you know, really hit it off with them. She's actually one of the first people that I met when I moved to Kansas city. And I had no idea that she was the person of significance that she is. So a lot of this is obviously just networking and finding people, but, you know, we looked at doing a consulting project for her on her property. And, uh, by the time we were done, we were estimating about a $250,000 project and about $5,000 of that was, you know, tools, the, the collinear hose and the six row cedars and the four row cedars. But then the other, uh, you know, big, then like a hundred thousand dollars of it was, you know, greenhouses or high tunnels, both, both fixed and movable based on the concept that we were pushing. And then the other hundred was basically stuff we couldn't touch like infrastructure development and grading and, and, you know, big, big, big volumes of compost and soil being brought in. And I just, you know, we made a pie chart for them of where they were going to spend all their money. And it just saw this tiny little wedge for tools and this gigantic wedge for greenhouses. And, uh, we just turned, turned the corner right there and never looked back. So the company's called four season tools because it was created with the belief of bringing new tools into the, into the business or into the, into the, into our scene. And, uh, and I think that that's what we still do, right? But our tools just now are bigger and are 1,500 square feet to thousands of square feet on tracks and skids that move around. And so we still sell the, you know, the small tools and the things like that. But for me, it's really about the system is that if you're going to buy a high tunnel, you also need the things that are going to make you financially productive inside of a high tunnel. People are getting these NRCS grants, you know, building a 30 by 48, roughly a 1500 square foot building, you know, and then putting them in there and, and, you know, not planting them anywhere near as dense as they should and not thinking about, you know, greens with six row cedars and things, you know, you're paying so much money per square foot in that covered area that you need to have the tools and the system and the approach to allow yourself to actually get a return on investment uh, from that structure. Yeah, even if it is even if it is with a cost share through NRCS, it's still a substantial investment. Uh, not just in not just in money, but in terms of time and energy as well. And you really do want to try to make the most out of that. And that seems like something that, as you and I have talked over the years, Greg, is a real it's a real theme in in our in our discussions is 
how to think about things so that you're getting the most out of them. And that's something that I think you've really taken and applied with your with with City Bitty Farm. Yeah, I think so. You know, you, 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 Michael Pollan buys a you know, buys a cow to learn about meat, right? I think that as a person who is designing and implementing solutions for farms, the reason that my wife and I just decided to start our farm, you know, was was the realization that you know how much we would learn in the process, right? And at the time, it felt very like a very very simple decision. To be like, oh, we're just going to start a farm so that we know what it's like, you know. And looking back on it, we should have taken that decision more seriously, I think, right? Because it was a very 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 very, very long-term massive life decision, you know, and I um, mean, it was up there with having kids and, and getting married to my wonderful wife, you know, I mean, it's such an important decision because it's such a consuming profession. So, um, fortunately for me, you know, there's something to show for it. You know, when we, when we design greenhouses and, and, or design my own greenhouse and then realize that, you know, bench efficiency was going to be like one of the most driving, you know, points and how much money we could make out of that space. Right. Then, then, and that became, you know, very, very um, crucial in how we designed our space to make sure that that was possible. When we started paying for labor, financial investments and things like trolley systems that speed up your labor become very, very smart economic decisions, right? So, you know, we're trying to build the business and what we've done. And I think that that attention to detail, even for me, at what seems like a very, very small scale, right, um, has allowed us to have the success that we've had, but, you know, because we're a completely quality driven business growing specialty greens for high-end restaurants. And uh, it takes a certain person and personality to want to do that. I mean, I harvest 104 times a year. I deliver 104 times a year. I sow 104 times a year, twice a week, every week. We're delivering on New Year's Eve and Christmas Eve, but because I'm willing to do that better and harder than anybody else, there's a lot of business out there for me, you know, and uh, I don't see the the growth of my particular business stopping, but, you know, um, what the innovation we've been able to come out with bench efficiency and roll out benches and trolley systems and flip up benches and rainwater capture. And I've got radiant heating systems in my benches that are thrashing and slashing my winter heating bills, you know, and I'm setting financial records that are, that are only being met with our cohorts in Colorado and Washington state, but I'm doing it legally, you know, in Missouri with, the, <laughs> with, with microgreens. I mean, they can do it in three harvests in a year. Right. And, and, you know, we can joke around about marijuana production, but it is absolutely 100% part of our scene right now. And it's not going away. If I can move us towards something, that I think is really mentally fun to think about is is regenerative versus depletive farming, right? And I'm going to take these terms from Edwin Marty. And if people don't know who Edwin Marty is, he's he's one of my favorites in the industry uh, for sure. He uh, he was the guy behind you know Eat South and uh, a lot of the a lot of the urban farming initiatives down in Alabama. And now he's actually the the food policy coordinator for Austin, Texas. He wrote a book called Breaking Through Concrete. But he's like a sociologist or an anthropologist. Um, Turned, turned urban farmer, turned policymaker or policy influencer, right? And, uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful career that he's had, but he doesn't like, you know, we get caught up in terms of organic and natural and all this stuff. And, and he likes to think of them much more simply in the context of there are only two things. There are regenerative systems and there are depletive systems, right? And I think that we're having an agriculture crisis or there's a pending agriculture crisis because so many of our systems are depletive, right? And I think that that's something that I've really had to get my head wrapped around. It's something that I've really learned by being a farmer is that, you know, these inputs and outputs really, really matter. You know, when Elliot is, is you know, 
basically one of the people who brought soil blocking to the United States with these soil blockers, you know, there's, there's very little input. You start with the median that's compatible for soil blockers and you're not using these trays and these other things. And every time you can flash an input out of your operation, your efficiency in theory can go up, but definitely the, the manufacturing complexity, you know, of your, of your operation goes down. So when we're talking about the medium and inputs and outputs of operation, you know, one of the real takeaways for me as a farmer now is material handling is like one of the most critical parts of farming. How are you going to get your stuff from one place to another place at a scale that makes sense for your business? And I, think I actually really, think you really can make tough. an argument that I think you make an argument that the materials handling is really all we do in farming. I mean, even even the question of like plowing the soil is a materials handling game. You're moving the soil around. You know, it's all it's all about movement and motion and doing those kinds of things in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I totally agree. I totally, totally, totally agree. Right. And I, and, and that's where your scale comes in, right. Is how you can do material handling at different scales is, is a really important part of that. You know, when, when you sold me your mini pallet system, I mean, that changed my life for the better. My back started feeling better every morning. I started sleeping better, you know, because I had a system that was appropriate for my scale. And if anybody find a picture of that, Chris, or put a link up, there because that thing is really, you know, one of the, one of the better ideas that's actually hit my farm and immediately made an impact. It's just little small pallets you put on the ground and, you know, we've got a lot of concrete in my site in particular. So it's really easy to move things around on that concrete, but things get wet and just getting those things up an inch off the ground makes sense anyways, but it's taking the, all the benefits of, you know, lift jacks and stuff like that and bringing them down into that small scale. And I bought your pallet jack also, you know, and we use it every time compost comes and, you know, those two, those two things and buying that platform made it difference. So when we get back to the regenerative farming, you know, the inputs and outputs are very, very important and how they fit into your business model is very, very important because you pay for your inputs and you can either pay or financially reap the rewards of your outputs. Right. So one of the things that, you know, I'm being taught by some of the people that, that are teaching me farming, right. Is that, that maybe I'm, I'm trying too hard to get good compost and that maybe instead what I need to do is just get the, get the, the best, you know, organic matter compost I can get really, really affordably locally, like, you know, leaf waste and things like that. And that there's other ways to then bring that to the level I need it to be before I use it, you know, with like worm casting teas and things like that. So, you know, I'm really fascinated right now about this fact of like getting anything you can that's good stuff, really locally, really, really cheap. Right. And then make it good in a different way. Right. And then that different way can be a liquid something, whether it's a soy-based enzymes or fish emulsions or, or, or teas and stuff like that, you know, like it's this, it's allowing, you know, it's kind of like the hydroponic growers do, but the hydroponic growers can't do it in a regenerative way, you know, but also as compost-based farmers, we can, right? And I don't think that liquid feeding is bad, right? You have to do it intelligently or whatever, but I think what I'm trying to say is that as a farmer, we need to find the waste around us and turn it into something that's really, really good. But in that process, I want to borrow it for two weeks so that I can sell $10,000 of microgreens this month. You know? And right. I, I think that and, there's and, something to that. And that's where that, when you bring up like that compost input, that's a huge thing for you because you're, you're filling a 1020 tray with compost um, and other materials, sowing a crop in there. Two weeks later, you're harvesting the crop and then, and then that, that you've used up that input, right? Yeah, I think that I mean in general, you know, that that would that would that's how I would grow arugula, 
or Tokyo Makana okay. or any of your Asian greens, you know, things can take up to six to eight weeks on some of the fancier varieties. I mean, we're importing, um, you know, celery, specific celery seed from Asia because of some color it has and how it looks good in a mirepoix mix. I mean, once you become a specialty grower, it's just la la land. But what, when, when, what we are doing is you're exactly right. We're bringing in media and then we're putting it right into the spray. So, um, you know, I think farms, if you, if you want to talk to someone about what their farming operation is like, you know, you can ask them some very, very simple questions and, and you learn a lot about them, you know, um, what are you selling? You know, are you in vegetables or pork or whatever, you know, and then, you know, do you, do you hire labor and the farms that hire labor are completely different than the farms that don't hire labor. So I buy, uh, you know, I buy Cosmo blue compost and, uh, and then we take it and, you know, I know that I can cut that with like 50% peat, but the labor cost of doing that doesn't offset the savings of, of the peat. So even though I could use, you know, lower throttle stuff or cheaper kind of stuff, for me, it's a, it's a financial decision around labor, not a product decision, right? And I think that when you run an operation that, 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 you, that you, you really do need for the math to make sense, you find yourself doing legitimate design kind of criteria in order to allow that thing to make sense. And paying for labor is, is a huge part of our business. You know, for me, every dollar that comes into my business Right. You know, I've seen operations like mine operate, you know, 33 to 66% or 75% even of their, of their revenue is goes directly into labor. And we haven't started talking about, you know, compost and heating and seeds or any of that stuff. So literally every dollar that comes in, 66% of it goes right to labor and you haven't gotten everything else yet. So it's the most labor intensive form of vegetable production that I've ever seen, you know, but, uh, but I think you also get the reward from it because, you know, because you, because of that relationship, you're able to, to, to create jobs, you know, and, and hire people and have a staff, you know, because, you know, it just, it just works that way. I'm not operating a, a single machine that one person can run and do a million acres of corn, you know, where our, our, we're literally starting every seed touches our hand and goes into a tray and every microgreen tray can have hundreds, if not thousands of plants inside of it. So when I start paying for labor and I have to design my operation, around labor and you know then 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 that's literally what it is so we talk about material handling we talk about labor those are exactly the same things right <laughs> it costs so, money time yeah. and energy to move things around right so when you design an operation you design your operation completely around labor because everything else on financially is completely insignificant when in the context of the order of magnitude that labor is at the small scale that you and i typically are talking about that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting concept because, you know, and I, and I pay attention on, on various uh, listservs and Facebook discussion groups and, and labor is a, it, it's a, and it's a real interest of mine, but it's a constant, it's a constant bugaboo for people. How to, uh, just recently, there's been a big discussion on the, on the CSA discussion group on Facebook about, um, about how to hire good people, how to actually, how to actually take workers and get them to do the work that needs to be done and to do it quickly and well. And it seems to me that you've, you've really worked on that concept, not only facilitating efficient work through the tools and the layouts that you have, but also facilitating efficient work through the kinds of, of training and decision-making processes that you have your workers go through. 
Well, it reminds me of my I have a very good friend named Chris Sweeney. And if anybody ever needs like some legitimate large scale you know, machining done, you know, he, uh, he's a great machinist out of New Hampshire. But one of my best friends, and he told me one time, he said, uh, "If you want to figure out the fastest way to do a job, give the job to the laziest person." Yeah, because they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out the laziest way to do it, right? And lazy and efficiency are two really, really similar things. And uh, and I think that you know, I look at my farm, you know, I. If someone put something down on the ground, I yell at them. You know, I saw a biometric study one time that said even something one foot off the ground, you know, the you know huge reduction in the physical demands of picking that thing back up again. You know, and uh, and I think that you just have to be, you know, conscious of the fact that you know there are there are actually there are actually four legs of sustainability. Right? We talk about you know the obvious ones, the environmental and the social aspect, which is frankly, why most people are in farming and definitely why a lot of the nonprofit farms exist, right? Then you've got the economic sustainability. And I would argue that more farms get that wrong than get it right. You know, we have farms that are, you know, completely designed around volunteer labor and grant money and donations and, or migrant labor, or, you know, cheap labor through, you know, Amish and Mennonite communities, through illegal labor, you know, through all those different things, you know, like that's not an economically sustainable system, right? The fourth part of sustainability now that I've been a farmer for five years and my body is giving out, right, is, is, is the personal sustainability. And that comes in, you know, your physical ability, that comes in your mental ability, your emotional ability, your ability to balance your relationships with your loved ones, right? And I think that that's another place where farmers get it really wrong, and, and me included. You know, my personal and family life has, has taken massive sacrifice to, to do what I do, you know, and then to be doing what I do because I'm doing it to help people and, and not doing it to you know, I want the business to make money, but, you know, um, and it will hopefully someday. Right. But the reality is, is that we do it because we love it and we care, you know? So when we talk about these efficiencies and we talk about this stuff, you know, if you save 10 minutes a day, you know, that's the difference between potentially like having dinner with my son Orion or not, you know? And, um, and I think that that we need to, we need to see the personal sustainability aspects when it comes to labor efficiency, material efficiency, scale, appropriate design and uh, and things along those lines. So Greg, let's let's talk a little bit about scale cuz I think this is a really this is really an interesting topic because it's it's something that's very very hard to get a hold of. You know, and, and you've got Four Season Tools is a you guys are engineered towards small farms. That's that's really your focus. In fact, I think your website is smallfarmtools.com uh that's is the URL that you guys that you guys go to. And and city bitty farm is a it's a small farm there's you're dealing with a a very limited number of square feet you have a small crew um you I mean you're you're pushing a lot of product through there there's a lot of dollars flowing through your business but it's but it's relative to agriculture as a whole it's tiny and i think one of the one of the funny things that happens with with farming, especially when we're dealing with local agriculture in the Midwest, is that what we think of here as a large farm doesn't even begin to touch what a small farm is out in the Central Valley of California. And so we, we the scale issue tends to be really squirrely. So I'd like to hear some more discussion about how you're how you're thinking about making these four legs of sustainability work on a small scale operation that really is so is so stepped outside of the conventional agriculture paradigm. Well, I guess I would like to put that discussion up into, into kind of two things. One is, is just I'll quickly talk about the scale that I'm at and why. Right. And then two, you know, I'll talk about 
you know, the, the three scales and vegetable reduction that I've seen that makes sense. Actually, why don't I do those in backwards order, right? So the three scales that kind of make sense are, I'm just going to say the gardener scale, right? So, you know, there's a lot of discussion about farmers versus gardeners and whatever. And again, I differentiate all of that. I don't care the term between people that pay for labor and people that don't pay for labor, right? So let's say everybody who doesn't pay for labor, right? Um, that is just a scale that I personally am not so involved in. It's kind of more the master gardener kind of stuff, in my opinion. And people can definitely make a living doing a little bit, but usually the, you know, the, the farm isn't being paid for the mortgage isn't being paid for out of the, the, the revenue of the farmer's market. Right. Then you've got the, 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 the small market farms, the people who are actually making their living and doing it. And those people can be really successful in that, you know, one, two, three acre stuff with the right, you know, with high tunnels, season extension, you know, tools like six row cedars and tilters from Johnny's and things like that. Right. And, and I've seen, you know, Elliot included people, who are doing, you know, 60, 70, 80, $90,000 an acre at that scale, right? Um, then the people that are trying to get a little bit bigger, typically the next scale appropriate technology that would come to the farm would be, you know, two wheel tractors or walk behind tractors, right? So we're not talking about a tiller, we're talking about a small farm device with a PTO. So you can take your implement off and put on different implements. So you can switch between a bed former and a tiller or whatever. And you and then you, you get rid of the kind of Elliott Coleman intensive split spacing and you can go up to, you know, two, three, four, five acres, right. And still hit some impressive numbers. You can be in that 60, $70,000, uh, an acre range. And I think that, you know, that for most people is, is the biggest a farm will ever get. Then there's a big break, right? And then you go up to the scale that Chris, you were operating at, right? Or Pete right. Johnson on the Vermont Canadian border, right? Or Michael Kilpatrick in upstate New York, who's now uh, the agriculture specialist for Four Season Tools. You know, these guys are crushing it at that bigger scale, but they all kind of have a similar model, right? In the sense that when it comes to the equipment, you know, you go to a farm like that, there's a cultivating tractor that's dialed in and set up for cultivation. There's a separate tractor that's got a watering wheel transplanter, whatever sort of transplant system it has that's dialed in for that. There's a different tractor, right, that's got kind of the utility tractor that's got the front end loader on the front and then the hitch equipment on the back to be able to use some of the other implements that they might need, like lawnmowers and stuff, right? right. And there's a specific tool for each job, right? And I was describing this once at a trade show in Kansas, or I was presenting in Kansas, and uh, this woman burst into tears, and I was right in front of me. I was like, oh my God, what was that about? So you know, come up to her afterwards, start talking to her. And she's just like, she goes, I, she goes, I just wish, you know, someone had told me that, you know, X number of years ago, because we had a farm and we tried to go from that tiny, you know, a couple acre scale up to about seven acres. And, and they, they went, they went bust in the process because they didn't go far enough. So when we're talking about market farming, I really think there's something to this one to five acre scale, you know, and you need to scale the farmer quickly, correctly for the equipment that you have. And then this big leap up for whatever. So on my farm, we're like a total notch down from that because we're just doing controlled environment growing. We have a greenhouse and we put things in the greenhouse year round. So, you know, last year at a 750 square feet, we pushed out like, you know, over $80,000. Right. Um, and what the history for me is that when we built a tiny little greenhouse, we had a 750 square foot outbuilding. And I said, okay, well, I'll just make a greenhouse that matches. I'll build it off the end of it. And at the time I was thinking, man, if I'm making 30, 40, $50,000 selling microgreens, that would be, I'd be the man. You know, like that would be right. awesome, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it takes about a year to build a farm, a year and a half to build a farm. So I'm building the farm. And then within, uh, you know, within six months of that, you know, we were doing, you know, 
know, handful of thousands of dollars a month. Right. And then it wasn't long at all, literally at all, like within a year that we, we had, we had maxed out. And so I turned to my wife and I'm just like, you know, Hey, we need more greenhouse. And she's just like, you're crazy. The first one almost killed you. You know? And I'm like, no, we need more greenhouse. And then together, you know, uh, there was a 51%, 49% decision made <laughs> as most compromises <laughs> in, in marriage. And I did not get a big, a bigger greenhouse. And, um, and, and I'm grateful, you know, in retrospect, I'm really, really grateful. She was, she was right about our moment in time, having just had a kid and, and things like that, that, uh, you know, we really need to, which is not the right moment, but what it forced me to do is it forced me to get a lot better. Right. So, you know, thinking I couldn't put more than $4,000 through that greenhouse through inventing new technology, like rollout benches and trolley systems and, and optimizing and building our sizing, our benches to our trays, as opposed to getting our trays to fit on our benches, these things that to me, now feel like, you know, fundamentals of greenhouse design at the time weren't really in the industry at all. And, and at least in our, in, on our scale in the industry. And, right. uh, and then we got a lot better. So the math said we could fit 324 trays in the greenhouse as originally designed. And by the time we hit that January, we were doing $6,400 of sales and we had 750 trays in the greenhouse, you know, by using all of the vertical space and the underbench space. And it changed the way I look at greenhouse is completely right. And so that was happening for me. And then aligned with that, we were doing a consulting project for a developer in Cambridge, looking at a rooftop farm in, uh, at MIT on a parking garage. And, and they just didn't really know what they wanted. They're like, Oh, we just know we want a greenhouse. We know we want a greenhouse. So what do you want to grow? I don't know. Just get us a bid for a greenhouse. And I said, no, I was like, I'm not going to bid something unless I have some idea what we're doing. And they said, well, we don't know. So they ended up hiring us as consultants because they realized they didn't even know the questions to ask. And through that process, we said, well, pick something to design this around. And it, this went on for weeks. And what we ended up deciding that a primary design criteria was going to be was two full-time employees, right? Because two full-time employees, right, uh, is a good thing. You know, there's morale associated with it. You can have people of different skill sets. Someone can quit in the huff and the farm continues to exist, right? Someone can be sick and the other person right. can still wash greens, you know, to try to farm and pay for labor at a, at a successful level and not have at least two employees put such a burden on that fourth leg of sustainability, the sustainability of the, of the person trying to manage that operation. Right. So, you know, and, and that, that was a big, big light bulb for me. It was like, Oh wow, we shouldn't design market farms that don't have two full-time people that aren't the owner. And then when we really went through the economics of what it takes to do that, the number that surfaced for me was $135,000. And this is now something that I truly kind of believe in personally and how I approach farming as a farm owner, but not necessarily the operator, right, is, is that $135,000. I don't think I would advise anybody to start a market farm that isn't going to try to do at least $135,000. Cause you know, the, there's this, there's this buy-in to agriculture, you know, like poker, they talk about a chip in a chair and you can win the tournament. You know, the chip in a chair for, for agriculture is everything. It's, it's, it's ground, it's irrigation, it's harvesting, it's wash pack, it's refrigeration, it's delivery, right? It's, it's payroll, yeah. it's taxes, it's social media, it's website design. 
online, it's e-commerce, right? It's CSA memberships, it's legal, it's insurance, right? It's workman's compensation, it's service and maintenance of your equipment and your tools. And I'm just going to say, having seen a lot of farms and a lot of farms start that didn't make it, is I think a lot of it says they're not shooting for this $135,000. So and right it, now, and it's our, not that you have to start there. It's not that no. you have to do that in your first year. It's that that's where you need to be. You have to you have to know that there's an endpoint to that to that really. A, there's a lot of hustle. I remember this on my farm, and I it's an interesting number to me, Greg, because in my experience, it's very similar that. You know, when we hit about that scale, it was like things kind of loosened up a little bit. There was you just, need for a three thousand dollar cooler to go out and to be able to go buy another one the next day without blinking an eyelash. Because exactly. it's such an important part of your operation. So we say that for everything that you buy in the farm, we have another number, which is ten percent of the cost of that item should be put towards that item for service and maintenance. So if you buy a twenty thousand dollar greenhouse, you need two thousand dollars a year to maintain that. And that's true for everything on your property. And people don't budget for that, right? People buy a brand new, you know, or the worst thing is that someone will give a grant to somebody for like a BCS two wheel tractor, right? And if you're going to get one, you know, call Joel at Earth Tools. He's the man, right? But, you know, they go and the grant will give somebody that tractor, you know, and, and then, and then the person has it, but might not be able to afford to change its oil, right? So the oil doesn't get changed and this brand new thing gets trashed. You know, I've seen literally beautiful brand new stuff hit, hit these farms and donations and stuff. But if you don't also give them the ability to service and maintain those things, then we're not doing a service with that, you know? Well, and I think even even on your own farm, you know, when when you talk about that in a nonprofit environment, it's always easier to get grants for capital investments than it is for ongoing expenses. You know, you people always want to invest in the new shiny thing, but it's also I think on on in an individual's operation and in something that really is a business, it's it's also a lot sexier to go out and buy a tractor or a BCS or a greenhouse than it is to think about you know, changing the oil, greasing the Zerks, replacing the tires, changing the plastic. That's all there. There's no, um, there's no, there's no sexiness in that. There's no, no, nobody's like, Oh yeah, boy, we changed the oil in the tractor. Boy, that was an exciting thing that happened in 2012. It's like, no, I bought it. I bought a new tractor. That was, that was fun. That was cool. Well, I think so the term for that is, is, you know, that I would use in the automotive industry was preventative maintenance, right? Is that you're, you're spending the time now to save the time later. Like literally what, you know, I was at your time management speech at Moses in February. And after you talked about, you know, your, you went on a spiel about preventative maintenance, right? I literally went home and knew a guy that could wrench. And I just said, you know what? It's worth it. And I've, Paid the guy two hundred dollars, and he came out for two days, and he just wrenched on all my equipment. You know, changed all the plugs, all the oil, whatever. And who can, who knows if it, if things need more work or less work? But for one very very minimal investment, that guy went through I think roughly nineteen pieces of powered equipment for me, right? And just got them all going. And then and that was now four months ago, and it's made for a smoother spring. It just has. It was a wonderful way to spend that two hundred dollars. You know. Well, it's just such a, it's such an important investment. I mean, one of the things with, with farming is it's all about timing. You know, farming is all about timing. You got it. Things have to work when you need them to work. And if you don't do that preventative maintenance, they're not going to, they're not going to work when you need them to work. Yeah. 
So, Greg, you're talking about this this scale issue, right? You said this $135,000 a year to be able to afford to have two full-time people on your farm. In addition to the farmer, you've talked about um, a 10% of an item cost going to, going to maintenance. What are some of the other principles that you've seen as you've worked with farmers and on your own farm that can guide the design of a farming operation? Yeah, I think I've split farm design into three categories. The actual kind of design phase of the farm, that's the fun stuff, right? That's the throw the noodles on the on the cabinet wall and see what sticks. Then there's the implementation phase of the farm, and then there's the actual kind of, you know, implementation and launch, I'll say, and then there's the operation of the farm, right? And I think that we need to be thinking about those three different things, those three completely different phases in the launch of the farm. And I think that a lot of problems are caused in trying to overlap those phases, like uh, designing on the fly <laughs> or, or uh, you, know, like, you know, not knowing what you're going to plan when you could have figured it out two weeks ago, and then the day that you really, really need to, you're sitting there and a beautiful day and the storm's coming, you only got three hours and you're trying to, you know, hand, hand scratch through what you're going to do. You know, the other thing that I see that really screws up operations and I've seen operations not make it because they got this wrong is they try to grow and build at the same time. And I think that's a bad idea. When you capitalize the farm, you need to, you need to build the farm, complete the construction, right? And then kind of launch the farm. And it doesn't mean you can't be playing. You can't have a couple things in the ground to play with timings and stuff that never more than like three of one plant <laughs> you know, makes a lot of sense to me. And, and so I'm first just going to say that I think there are three phases and that it's really, really important to not, uh, the best that you can in the situation that you're in, to not allow those things to kind of overlap. So we do a lot of farms that are literally starting. You know, our, our average, you know, our kind of target clients are people who have been through, you know, this, the process of deciding what it is they're going to do, have, have gotten access to, 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 to farmland in the capital and now are ready to, to start making the investments. I get involved typically when the farm is ready to buy their high pulse, right? Ready to buy their, you know, irrigation equipment and things along those lines. So, um, you know, a lot of times people do call me and, and are way, way too into the design phase for me to be helpful. As an engineer and an implementer, I'm the guy that can come in once they're actually ready to do it and help them figure out kind of how, uh, how to do it. So um, if, if you're okay with it, this is actually something I've been excited about is I've been excited to pick your brain about some of these things. I do believe that within the design implementation operation of my farm, a lot of the characteristics that we put into place are things that I've learned from you and your presentations and your operations. So um, to start with design, I'm just going to say scale. I think scale is is the number one decision. You know, do you want to do 20 acres? Do you want to do three acres? And I think along with scale, and when you're talking about things like that, you have to be very, very honest about the resources that you have. And those resources yes. are time, financial, capital, land, uh, equipment, all those kinds of things that, you know, what do you actually need to do to pull, to pull it off? So um, the first thing I would like to talk about is the difference between farm, land, and land. And now I've been to plenty of trade shows, plenty of events, and you just, you know, really, really enthusiastic person will come up and just be like, I've got access to land. I've got this amazing land, and it's got this and this and this and this. 
And I say, do you have frost-free hydrants on site? Oh, uh, well, no. Do you have access to natural gas or propane? Well, no. You know, do you have wash pack on site? Well, no. Do you have refrigeration on site? Well, no. Do you have the ability to drive a delivery vehicle to a place where it can safely unload? Well, no. Do you have, you know, a workshop space for, for equipment and maintenance and things? Well, no. Well, well, no, that's great. You've got really, really wonderful land, but you don't have farmland, right? And I think that we need to be starting with farmland. You know, there's so much farmland out there, places that already have barns and outbuildings, you know, and this belief that like, you know, small scale food is so important that, that I can be in coastal Maine and, and start a farm. You know, I saw a girl that was really discouraged me. Oh, the local food scene is just, you know, you can't, you can't get into it. There's just not enough, not enough demand. Well, you live in coastal Maine where the per capita small scale organic farmers through the roof, you know, <laughs> like right. move to upstate New York, you know, move to Ohio. People in regular professions, right, move to where the business is good, right? And we need to understand as farmers, we need to do that. We need to travel the world and do woofers and do interns, learn on somebody else's dollar, see all the different opportunities that are out there. But the farms that I see that are successful, like Eric Franks, you know, my microgreen mentor outside of Philadelphia, he moved his farming operation from Oregon to Philadelphia because he saw the fact that it was close to urban environments for land prices that could get him the farm that he always dreamed of having, right? But can still pay for the price of the product that he was going to grow, right? And I think that people people really get that wrong, right? About this land and farmland and the fact that the convenience of the property is not the decision-making purpose for the property. You might be better selling off this beautiful piece of land that you've always thought you were going to turn into a farm to get the capital to go to a place and find a place that has all the resources that you want. Like I've been talking with a developer in Kansas City and one of the things he says, he goes, the key to redevelopment is to find the building that used to be what you now want and turn it back into what it now what you want it to be. So we're talking about, you know, manufacturing site, right? And he's just like, the dumbest thing you can do is just buy a building and try to turn it into a manufacturing site. We need to find a place that used to be a steel shop that's got ceiling cranes and it's got three-phase power and all these different things. And then we can go in there and in a month, we can polish it and turn it on as opposed to spending the next 18 months and, and doing this. So I think that the, the design and the, and the site selection are probably, you know, the scale and the site selection are probably the most important thing to do uh, on the front end. <laughs> Greg, I think I actually think this is an interesting, a really interesting point here that it's not even just that it's farmland, right? It's that it's market farmland. Yes. If you want to have, I mean, it, it's one thing if what you want to do is raise is raise grass fed beef for people's freezers, and it's another thing if what you want to do is to raise fresh vegetables because it's it's or and it's it's one thing if you want to raise a thousand acres of corn. There's an entirely different set of considerations uh, than if you want to 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 raise uh, radishes for a living. And, and I think the same thing's true in the scale discussion. Asking what it is that you want out of the farm is such an important question because I think a lot of people, um, they, a lot of people aren't, they don't want a farm. They don't want a market farm. What they want is a market garden. They want to make some, they want to make a little bit of money in their backyard or they want to have it be a part-time enterprise that is actually supported by somebody working off farm because that's what's, that's what feels comfortable. That what feels like that's what feels like appropriate risk. That's what feels like an appropriate amount of work, and that's fine. But I think it's really important to be clear about about that distinction between being somebody who's making some money on on a piece of land and somebody who's actually being a market farmer and is making a living 
on the market farm and, and the kinds of the kinds of locations and resources and even the kinds of land that you need to make that work. I remember talking to, to Trish Bross uh, at Luna Circle Farm. They market at the farmer's market in Madison. I can't remember where she's located right now, but she actually started farming on a ridgetop in southwest Wisconsin. And she, after farming there for, I want to say it was 10, maybe 15 years, she moved to uh, to more central Wisconsin onto a lot better land. And she, she told me, she said, you know, Chris, I, I always thought that I wasn't a very good farmer. And it actually turns out I'm a really good farmer. I just didn't have the land that I needed to be a really good farmer. Well, and I would also you know? say that seeing people, I've seen a couple of people move their farms and I've seen, I've seen divorces over it. You know, like it is, you, I just, I would never want to do that. Right. Even though I'm just you know thinking about it sometimes in my own place. Right. Like I, it's, you don't want to do that. So my, my belief is you learn on someone else's dollar, right. You, you learn from all these different people and then you save or you do everything you can and you seek out opportunities and, and you network. And there are plenty of people. I mean, even, I mean, I'm an urban farmer in Southeast Kansas city, even within 15 blocks of my place, there are two people that would hire a full-time farmer if they, if they knew that the person they were hiring was worth it. Right. I mean, that's just within literally 10 blocks of where I live. You know, there's wow. a huge shortage and people to actually go out there and do this. Greg, we're going to take a moment here and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell has a full service agronomy department that provides support to their nationwide network of customers, dealers, and distributors. And Fertrell is about far more than just any one type of crop. They work with commodity and forage crops, large-scale vegetable and fruit farms, and small-scale and backyard growers, as well as livestock producers. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and the knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Their full line of soil amendments, dry blend and liquid fertilizers, and weed, pest, and disease control products for organic production means that they can help you to assemble a comprehensive system for organic farming. The Fertrell Company knows that healthy soils are the foundation for healthy crops, not just from a philosophical standpoint or for maximizing nutrition, but also because building healthy soils sets the stage for harvest efficiency, post-harvest quality, pest resistance, and succession planting. Fertrell better naturally for trail.com. The farmer to farmer podcast is sponsored by Osborne seed company. Osborne seed company is focused on serving professional growers on any scale from market gardens to commercial scale, organic and conventional growers. With their active sourcing and trialing program, Osborne Seed is able to offer a wide range of products, giving growers a competitive edge with niche products, as well as a greater selection of varieties to meet the challenging and increasingly variable growing and marketing conditions faced by today's growers. I learned about Osborne Seed from one of the fussiest growers I know who recommended them to me as a source of high quality seeds. One of the little telling details about Osborne's dedication to quality and their focus on market farmers is that they pack all of their seeds to order in resealable form oil packets, which helps to maintain the quality of the seeds over time. When you grow crops for market and successions throughout the season, you need quality seeds the first time you plant them and the last, and little details like this make a huge difference. Osborne Seed Company, high quality seed and superior customer service. New and existing customers get $5 off the first order of $50 or more when you mention the Farmer to Farmer podcast. OsborneSeed.com.
Now back to our interview with Greg Garbos. And the more people you intern for, the more farms that you go to. And, and I love the idea of, you know, if you're a young person and you're, you have a partner, is partners going together, right? And, and going through those stressful farming environments and all that different stuff when it's not your farm and your life depends on it. And then you do everything that you can to just, you know, leverage your moment, right? And, and then the doors will just start opening for you, right? And don't be afraid to say no to those first couple doors because they might seem so, so great, but they're not perfect. The per- perfect things are all right around the corner. So people who really want to get into the space and are willing and able to do the work, the, the sky is the limit. You know, I've seen, you know, Colin Thompson's a great example. He used to work for Four Season Tools and now he's running the Mich- you know, Upper Peninsula Michigan State organic, the student organic vegetable farm, right? And, and the guy's amazing, you know, and he was able to do that by, by learning from other people and, and the, the doors just open. And now he's got one of the coolest, I mean, he works really hard and he's a really smart guy, but he's now got one of the coolest jobs. You know, the, of anybody that I know that's taken a farm manager job, you know, and uh, and it's out there. It's out there. It's absolutely out there. Um, but so if I can continue to go on the design, there's sort of a couple other things that I think, you know, we're talking about. So scale and scalability, we talked about the $135,000. The other thing I'm going to say is you want to design your farms to do twice that. So 135000 is what, you know, to me is the minimum kind of, you know, farming operation that makes sense. You want to make sure when you actually build out your infrastructure or whatever, that you're basically building it out at a factor of at least two, if not three X, right? Meaning that, hey, I'm about to put in a walk-in cooler, the incremental cost of a walk-in cooler that's let's say 500 square feet versus 750 square feet is not a lot of cost, right? But then what it can do for your operation and, and, and the ability to scale and ramp up into that. The worst thing you want to do is build this beautiful farm, right? Get to a place where suddenly, you know, you built it not big enough, right? So, you know, I think it's important that when you design it, that you also say, well, I'd be happy with 135,000 or whatever your number happens to be. But then you want to make sure that you build the infrastructure so that it is, you know, could be more. So for example, on my farm, we just put in electrical, new electrical service to our greenhouse. And the choice was between 100 amp and 200 amp. Now, our utility pays for the main line from the pole. The difference in cost to me was $115. So I don't need 200 amps, but for $115, I sure as crap want them to put it in, you know? So, Greg, I mean, I, I see where things makes where that makes sense with things like running an electrical line or maybe running a water line where where the cost of doing it over is going to be really high and where the where the actual dollar outlay to put in, say, you know, two inch line, uh, two inch water line versus one inch water line is, is really not significantly that much more. You're not talking thousands of dollars, you're talking hundreds of dollars. Yeah, if you're on but, a trench, also run your telecommunication, your wire, your security lines, your phone lines, your coax, your ethernet, like the, the cost of digging the trench, not the wire. Fun, fundamental principle here. You could, you're, listen, if, if, you, if, you're, if you don't already know this and you're listening to this podcast, this will be worth every episode that you've listened to so far. <laughs> this one hint is that if you open a trench, you lay everything you possibly can in that trench. Even if you lay the ethernet line, lay the co, you know, whatever it is, put it all down in there because you just never know what it is that you're going to want. And it's way cheaper to get it in the first time. And besides which then you don't have to dig another trench and risk hitting things with it. But, but Greg, so it's easy to talk about this when we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred dollars, a phone line or something or a, you know, electrical wire, but what, what about when you say engineer for two or three times as large when we're talking about something like a packing shed or a walk-in cooler where we're not talking we're not talking hundreds of dollars we're talking tens of thousands or even potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars more to build a pack house that's going to be that's going to work for a 
Well, now we're talking a $400,000 farm rather than for a $135,000 farm. Yeah, I think that in general, uh, just always err on the side of bigger, right? Um, and because and what's going to happen in farming is it's just going to be those moments, right? It's just that moment where there's a huge event, and now you know my coolers have in them, you know, deli platters for this event, you know, and now there's no room for the for the arugula, right? So there, when you when you plan it, there's always going to be things that you can't plan. You know, I heard this guy named Chris Blanchard speak one time and talked about how you know your plan only lasts until your first encounter with the enemy am i sub quoting you even yep. remotely yep. close it, right it's I, actually and, it's it was a it was a it was a general in the in the franco-prussian war who said that but you know i was just quoting but i think that uh you know I've, i think about it a lot because i heard you heard you say that right and i think that that's that's entertaining to me because it's absolutely true so you know i would just and then i find the thing find the sweet spots right you know like um the reality is the first single square foot of a cooler is 50% of your cost, right? And then as you get bigger, it's, it's the rest of it. So I think finding those sweet spots. So like for me, when I did my radiant heating system, right, you know, there was this really crazy jump between, you know, dollars spent on a BTU heater versus gallons of the heater or whatever. I got really, whatever was into it in that moment. And, and it, it made me realize that if I went to commercial level, right? So yeah, I had to spend $1,800 as opposed to like $800, right? Right. But then that would have a return on investment of five years because the efficiency that I would gain and I was able to actually do it. And at the time, I was looking at two heaters versus one. I was able to do it all within one heater. Right. So, you know, there's things to be looking at as far as redundancy. If one thing fails, what happens? Right. So we talk about like twice the cooler space that you need. It's better to have that be two different coolers than one cooler. Right. And, you know, cool bots are amazing. You know, Ron Cosa is one of the smartest guys that I know in this field. And, you know, if anybody look at, you know, cold storage, you build your own walk-in and use a window air conditioning unit with this thing called a cool bot that allows you to, to, to kind of override the thermostat of the, of the air conditioner and, and do a walk-in cooler, right? So uh, I think his website is storeitcold.com. He's the same guy That's behind right. Certified Naturally Grown, and he's the same guy behind the Alice G Electric Tractor Conversions. Very, very smart fellow. And when we did our radiant, you know, I designed my radiant heating system with him, and uh, when we started talking about some of these things and looking at some of this stuff, you know, it became really, really apparent that, you know, more is better, especially when it comes to like the livelihood of my plants. So there's situations that don't really matter, right? You know, like, Hey, does it really matter if this concrete pad is this versus that, you know? So how do you size your beds? You know, a lot of people size their beds and their spacing around buildings about where they can drive a tractor around it or where they can pull a car with a trailer. You know, it's, it's a, going back to the labor, right? If there's a moment where you can spend twice as much and save 10% labor, you do it. You just do it because it's a one-time investment that'll do it. So for me, it has so much to do with labor savings, redundancy, right? If you have one cooler going out, the fact that you still have another one, right? So you're not screwed, you know, you know, uh, you spend the money on your own, uh, I'll, I'll call it intellectual uh, insurance. So I have in my coolers and in my greenhouses, I have a temperature alarm system. I happen to use the one from Lacrosse, uh, Lacrosse Technologies as a Lacrosse Alerts branded product. And they're, you know, about $100, $150 to buy the kind of base setup. You have a little device that you plug into your, your ethernet, uh, your router, and then it all kind of, you know, your sensors have to be within a certain distance of that thing. So there's, you know, it's, it's a limited thing, but for a hundred dollars, I get text alarms and email alarms or anything that goes out. So 
I have them in my coolers, especially on the nights before delivery when I've got thousands of dollars in there. I've got them in the greenhouses. I got them in the germination chambers. I can test my radiant heating system, you know, water, but these alarming systems. So I think part of these investments too is the fact that you, you spend the money to protect your investments, right? So yeah, when, you know, the, you know $300 is not a lot of money, right? But I have, you know, at any given moment, I got right now like $22,000 of product in my greenhouse of, you know, current potential product, you know? And so if, it'd be really dumb to not buy a $3,000 heater and then have, you know, have my first heater go out and not have a backup and not be able to and lose it all. You know I mean? That's the kind of thing that would, you know, take years to recover from. So I think it's also about it making the investments that, um, kind of the, Oh no, kind of investments or the, Oh, you know, the, I'm not I'm just searching for a term here, but I almost want to say it's a preventative maintenance thing. It's a, it's, it's no different than changing the oil in your tractor before you have a problem with the oil in your tractor It really is just saying, uh, we're, we're, it's a monitoring tool. And that's such a, that's such a key function on the farm is, is paying attention to what's going on. And this is just another way of paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, and I think absolutely. So having that right stuff, having it at the, you know, at the scale that does make sense for your operation, thinking about redundancy and just always thinking, what happens if something failed? You know, I have a vegetable spinner, a greens machine that we use to spin all of the water off of our greens after we wash them because it improves their shelf life. Um, and if that were to go out, you know, in the middle of the day, you have a delivery day, we'd be we'd be crippled, right? So we have another one sitting on deck and it's a $2,400 machine new. I mean, I buy them used for five, six hundred, you know, $100, but you know, um, I have that there, you know, uh, our harvesters, we use these little grass trimmers from Black and Decker and mechanically harvest a lot of our stuff. And, and, and we try to never use scissors because of, you know, labor efficiency. And it's such a key tool for us. We have two of them brand new sitting in a box, right? And if, if one of those boxes get opened, I get notified and we replace that box because it's that important to what it is that we do. We have to have that stability even when things don't go, you know, don't go right. So, you know, another design thing right, that I talk about is, you know, uh, I guess, I guess we're, we're kind of switching into implementation, but, you know, is buying into platforms, right? So if you're going to go and say IFCO crates, collapsible crates are going to be the way we're going to move produce around and do our material handling. When you go to buy IFCO crates, you don't buy 10 of them. You buy 110 of them, right? And when you find these platforms that work that you want to do, you buy a lot of them because they all stack nice. They can nestle nice, right? You, you've bought into a standardized platform. Now you can make sure that as you're designing benches and stuff, that the benches are tall enough and wide enough to fit this, fit this crate when you do the mini pack pallets, your mini pallets are sized for the bottom, for the bottom of the crate. You know, when you buy a lacrosse alerts alarm system, you don't spend hundred dollars, you spend the $300 and you get all five of these different alarms, you know, and I think that buying into platforms at bulk, you know, when we're talking about market farming makes a tremendous amount of sense. The analogy I use in my personal life is when I go to buy socks, I go to Costco and I buy three huge bags of socks, right? I'll buy like a hundred pairs of socks at once. And they're all, you know? and they're all the same, right? So that you don't, when you when you get done doing the laundry, you don't have to spend any time matching the socks. You just put them all in the drawer. So I think that that kind of purchasing when it comes to key items on the farm, it's really funny when you watch somebody, you know, who's typically used to harvesting with a, with a, with a certain pair of scissors and then they can't find them and they grab a different pair of scissors and you watch that person just stumble through that moment, you know, and they're a very competent person. There's nothing against them. Right. But you're, you're disrupting their muscle memory. Right. And one of the amazing things about farming is when you, when you farm to the point of, of excellence, must your muscles are kicking in, you know, why is it that guys, you know, that are the fastest, 
math computers in the world or the kid, those little, you know, kids from Asia who can, you know, are, are kids that can do it with abacuses, right? Because once they're so good at it, they don't even use the abacus anymore. And you'll just see them sitting there doing complex math stuff, like twiddling their fingers because our human muscle memory is far faster and innate than our ability to, to think about it. That's why, you know, skateboarders can do tri- triple crazy flip ollie things and, and mixed martial arts players can have someone turn to a, a hint of a direction and, and then they can flip them over or a linebacker being able to go this direction versus that direction, you know, in that key moment, those are all, that's your body, your body being faster than your brain. Right. And muscle memory is a really important part of efficiency. And that's where I, if people do it, it's all a story that I really like. I was working in the, uh, automotive industry at the Atlanta assembly plant building Ford Tauruses. It was a wonderful job. And, um, and, uh, but there was this guy that I met and he was training a new guy and, uh, every job has to be done in 54 seconds. The line time is 54 seconds. So literally your job happens 54 seconds. You stay put, the cars move through the plant. Right. So he was training this guy and, and he told him a story about how, you know, the first day he's there, you know, he's got to go three cars up, you know, get in that guy's way, do his little job or whatever. So the time it gets to us, he's, he's only, he's halfway done. And then he's got to disrupt the next three guys in the line because he's not done his stuff. And he's like, Oh, this is hard. And then three weeks later, you know, he's only disrupting the guy in front of him, behind him, you know, and then a month after that, he finally could do it in 54 seconds. So he turns and he's just like, Hey, Bobby, you know, do I got it? And he's like, no, you don't got it. And he's like, oh, okay. Right. So then, you know, a little bit later, he's doing it. He's doing it in 44 seconds. You know, he's like, Bobby, do I got it? And Bobby's like, no, you don't got it. Right. A month goes by later, you know, like he goes up three lines ahead of him, gets the next three cars done, goes to the bathroom, right. Comes back, gets on the line, does doesn't miss a beat. And he turns and he goes, Bobby goes, yeah, you got it. You know? And I think that that's just like such a funny story for me because I've seen that in my farm. Like when we doubled the size of the farm, our farmers had never seen an operation like ours operate at that scale. I had, and I, and I designed it and I've been designing these things, but they had never seen it. And then it was a really, really rough four months, right? Where suddenly you're now responsible for twice as much stuff as what they felt. But it didn't take long before we were able to grow twice as many microgreens with only about a 15 to 25% increase in our time. And a lot of that had to do with this, this muscle memory. These guys were getting in the groove. And now instead of sewing 40 trays, you're sewing, you know, 140 trays. And how much faster you can do 140 trays versus 40 trays, right? And I think that, that, that when we have these systems, we have to allow ourselves to, to fall into our chores, right? And I think that once you do that, and once, you know, the muscle memory's there and you're, and you're doing all those wonderful things, efficiency and the speed kind of comes in. Well, I just think that, you know, that's, that's something we're getting, we're getting, you know, it's really t- tough in farming is that it's also, it's also a very high turnover industry. It's a very easy entry industry with high turnover. So you have a lot of people who typically aren't staying at farms for very long. And as a person who wants to be a farm owner, not a farm operator, you know, that is a, a very difficult part of our, of our industry. And it goes back to the design and implementation. Do you want skilled labor or unskilled labor? And how can you systemize your things to accommodate for both? I think that's actually, I mean, we say that that's, that it's something it's, it's not inherent in the industry. I mean, if you go out to California, the people that are harvesting vegetables in California are professionals. That's what they do. And I remember reading an article a few years ago that really, it really made an impression on me. This guy was talking about harvesting iceberg lettuce and how the, the, the crew that they had out there, that's what they were picking was iceberg lettuce. And, um, they didn't pick five kinds of lettuce. They picked iceberg they did that. They were talking about how long does it take to get really good at picking iceberg lettuce? And one of the guys on the crew said, you know, it takes three years to get good 
at picking iceberg lettuce. You know, and that's that's the kind of thing that you're talking about here with this hitting your stride, really feeling like that muscle memory. It's where it's where you're not you're not thinking about it at all. And you're just doing your hands, your hands and your body do the things that it needs to do without any any real intention on your part. And I think it's something that we really underestimate when we design systems that that are essentially designed to facilitate turnover. We design we design farm systems that have low paying jobs low weight, low wage so that people can't afford to stay. We, we set up seasonal operations that don't have any potential for year round employment. Um, we're not storing, we're not using the, the advantages of the greenhouses in the North. So we we end up with this situation where people, it's not that it's, it's not that we have high turnover. It's that we've created a system where there isn't any option other than high turnover. I think we need to think about how do we get that? How do we get those people to come and stay? Yeah, you know, I, and so I take a slightly different approach, right? We have a year-round operation, right? And we try to pay our skilled labor really well. I think I have something like 33 or 50% of the year-round salaried farming positions in, in Kansas City in sustainable agriculture. There's very, very few. And I have two full-time employees, <laughs> right? So, right. you know, um, but we pay them, you know, I, I believe I pay them a, a fair, you know, above market you know, wage for what they do. So we have a limited number of people and then we try to invest in them to do it. But I mean, I'm hiring right now. We always have problems, you know, with staffing, right? And uh, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, you're exactly right about the characteristics that go in there. So when you talk about farm design, I personally, and I'm a season extension greenhouse guy, right, is is I don't understand farms that aren't year-round. I understand people need a break and all this stuff. I get that. But, like, you know, to have a summer CSA but then not to have a winter CSA, like, what other industries do you basically design your operations that at one point at the end of the year you wave goodbye to your clients and you say, Hey, I hope to see you guys in the spring. You know, that makes no sense to me at all. You know, when we talk about this infrastructure, when you buy a walk-in cooler, you own that walk-in cooler at 365. You know, you don't own that walk-in cooler, you know, just for, you know, one period of time or another. Uh, it's cost you that money. So I'm a huge believer in, in year-round farming. And then your seasonal labor in theory, right, could be your, you know, your kind of hiring pool to make sure that your year-round positions you know, are are full. But, you know, again, my business model is pretty specific because, you know, I, I, we're in the specialty industry where I need skilled people. I mean, I have two people and, and they're putting, you know, $10,000 out a month by themselves. You know, when you talk about scale and all the stuff, when we do our deliveries, we do it in three whale coolers, right? And we literally deliver $1,000 twice, twice a week and we do it in three whale coolers, right? So we're not pulling you know, pallets of, you know, potatoes out of the ground or anything like that. And I think that that is, that is really important is this year round aspect to the farming operation, because it's really hard to do a seasonal business. Cause if you're, you know, nine month season, you have to do 33% more during those nine months to pay for that winter than you would have if you were a year round farm. And I think recognizing that there's a lot of different options and opportunities for that. I know that lately the four season production has been a big one, but I know a lot of farms that that back in the nineties were able to shift into four season uh, availability of product and and four season employment for their, for their labor by going to storage crops. You know, that there's, there's other, I think there's other ways to crack that nut than just, than just being, you know, than, than being an Elliott Coleman four season farm or being a Greg Garbos, uh, 
you know, four season micro microgreens operation. I think there's a lot of creative approaches that can be taken to to creating something that really does have year round potential. And I think it's and I think ultimately it's something we're going to need in the local foods market, because as long as as long as we're willing to back out for the winter time, like you said, we lose our customers. Yep. We had this product yesterday and we don't have it again today. And and we want we hope you're going to come back in six months. But that's just not I don't know. That's not very that doesn't feel like a like you just said, it's a business model. The only other business I can think of where that works is professional sports. Well, or, you know, I'm, I've got from New Hampshire, so ski mountains, you know, yeah. or kayak rentals or, you know, things that are, are seasonal heavy, but those businesses, you know, the margin on those businesses is, is not aligned with the margin in our industry. Well, and let's also think about the fact that, that what has happened, you take the ski industry recently, when, when I, I spent a couple of years in Aspen, Colorado, back in, in the, uh, the late 80s, and back then the ski industry was just beginning to expand outside of its normal season. But now those chairlifts, they're in service all year round. They're, they're running mountain bikers up to the top of the mountain to let them bike down. I mean, um, my my partner's daughter just got a job at a at at a ski at a, at a ski place up near St. Croix Falls except her job is for the summer water park so they're using i mean yeah there's a way in which they're not using, necessarily using the mountain in the in the summertime but they're using the the labor pool the management resources all of those other things are being they're being used year round, even if it's not exactly the each each resource that's being used year round, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, the reason they're doing it is they're trying to make the math work. So, Greg, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about kind of designing your system for your farm. How let's switch over and talk for a minute about about this implementation phase. Yeah, so I think that, you know, we've we've definitely talked about, you know, different philosophies on on what kind of farms can look like, right? When it comes to implementation, I think that there's a big thing there about prioritization, right? And and one of the best ways a farm can do that is just just bring one thing through the farm, right? What it takes to have a single letter headus, harvest it out of the ground, wash it, pack it, weigh it, label it, invoice for it, receive that invoice for it, you know, have a price sheet for it, et cetera, et cetera. What it actually takes just to do a single head of lettuce is, is a lot, right? The difference between a single head of lettuce versus a thousand heads of lettuce is, is not as significant as going from zero heads of lettuce to one head of lettuce, right? And I would suggest that when you think about implementation to really think about, uh, think about it in that way. Think about operationally how these different items will be going through the operation and, and be thinking about what sort of things make sense there, right? So um, for me, if you're talking about a year-round farm, one of the first, you know, construction things, you know, that's going to happen is the ability to actually do something with produce once you have it, right? So that's making sure there's a sink, refrigeration, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then, right. then there's the kind of office stuff. And again, that's, that's the price sheets, the marketing literature, you know, the whatever. And then um, when it comes to the kind of construction phase, uh, I think that water is, is just way up front. It's just way, way up front. You know, in fact, uh, we have a rule that when we build farms or even our, in our garden at our place, you are not allowed to plant plants until the irrigation system is in place. You're not allowed to do it. And if you Greg, actually Greg, live... Greg, hold on, hold on, hold on. Say that one more time really slowly, because I think this is something that a lot of people miss. If you make the decision on your farm to have a rule 
that nothing is allowed to get planted until the irrigation system for that is in place, you have a better chance of succeeding at that farm. You know, because it, water is the life bread of all this. You can't control when there's sunlight or not, but you have to have water. You have to have water before you plant. So when you're thinking about your infrastructure development on a farm, your frosty hydrants and your trenches, uh, these are very, very important things that you need to have in place pretty much right away. And And when you do that, you need to know where you're going to need water. So through your design phase, you've come up with, you know, your, your master plan, potentially done in phases, right? And then once you have that, you say, well, I know that I need to have a frost rehydrant in the greenhouse and I need to have one in the corner of every planting bed. And I need to have one anywhere where I would wash and pack. And I need to have one near my orchards or animals, right? And, and you put that in and to your point, when you trench, you put all that stuff in, right? Same, you know, same rule of thumb is whenever you pour concrete, put, put your PEX lines in for future radiant heating. If you ever wanted to, we were talking That's about that right. earlier before the call, right? But there are these things that you do that are involved with infrastructure. So you basically, once you know your layout, you put your water and your utilities in all of your services, whether it's propane tanks or, or natural gas or all that stuff. I think that I made a huge mistake in, in not doing that. And I knew better. Right, but I didn't have the budget at the time. I could afford the greenhouse, but I couldn't afford everything else. And the reality is, is I shouldn't have shouldn't have built a greenhouse first. I should have gotten the water in place first. Right. I mean, I even had my greenhouse up before I put a sixteen hundred gallon cistern in the greenhouse. I'm trying to figure out how to get a sixteen sixteen hundred gallon cistern through the hoops of a greenhouse that was already constructed. <laughs> it was not my proudest moment as a farm engineer. You know? And uh, but I think that that infrastructure stuff is is critically important, kind of early on in that. Uh, in that stage. Then going back to a point I said earlier, and this is another just rule of farm construction, in my opinion, is that you got to build the farm before you farm, right? It's so annoying. And I've done it in my own farm over and over and over again, but I need to do some, something stupid with construction in my greenhouse that I should have done before. And now I'm moving 48 trays out of the way to do it, you know, and it's disrupting the operation. It's disrupting the rhythm, the muscle memory, all this kind of stuff that we're talking about, right? It's just, it's bucking the trends of how things are going. So you really do want to do everything you can to try to finish that project. And, and, you know, Chris, I'm sure it's available on your website, but your time management presentation on Moses this year was really, really fantastic. I mean, the whole, the whole farm staff listened to it. My whole office staff, we now have all of our index card, Amish PDAs, you know, and are taking you know that stuff really, really seriously. So I think that um, this infrastructure is, is, is commonly, commonly overlooked, but the infrastructure goes all the way through the, the watering, the irrigation, the greenhouses on the season extension, the, the, the harvesting, the tr- material transport from the harvest to the wash pack, the washing and packing transport to the refrigeration, from the refrigeration transplant to the delivery system, right? Thinking that all out, you know, and, and literally all the way through the invoice to the receipt of the invoice, right? Just get all of that in place up front. You can always make it better later, but if there's no mechanism in place, then you can really find yourself in a difficult situation. I remember right. being very, very difficult to sell my first $5 of microgreens. I've been growing microgreens for nine months, right? And I couldn't get anybody to give me a dollar. I couldn't get anybody to give me a dollar, right? And it, and it was so frustrating. I would have buddies come over and I'd be like, dude, here's, here's a million dollars of microgreens. Just give me five bucks for this so I could finally say that I'm a market farmer. And they would laugh at me because I, <laughs> I was so emphatic about it, they didn't realize that I was being serious, you know? And it wasn't until we landed this one restaurant account. But I realized quickly that one of the reasons I didn't do that is I didn't have a mechanism in place for the point of sale. There was no price sheets. There was no invoices. There was no way to build 
owe anybody anything. You know, like I was missing completely the fact that there has to be a commerce point of sale solution for me to sell this stuff. And it took me months. It took me months. And then, you know, then we landed our first restaurant account, right? That was, you know, we're going to buy from us twice a week, every week. And then we had to scramble to put together our, you know, invoices and price sheets and how are we going to do deliveries and what form goes with the stuff that goes and does the deliveries. Right. So I think that, you know, that is, that is something, you know, I have another rule on my farm that nothing, nothing gets planted unless we know where it's going to get sold. Now our garden is different. We do a lot of experimentation in our garden, but within our greenhouse, we don't plant it unless we know it's going to be sold. So we do right. a grow to order concept, which is, um, it was very, very hard to get off the ground. And part of the reason it took me nine months to sell stuff is I didn't have something to sell. I was trying to basically say, I will grow you whatever you want, chef. And it took a long time to get that going, but now that it exists, it's awesome. It was such a good decision back then, even though it hurt a lot in those early stages is that we are actually, you know, growing to order and how we implement this stuff. So deciding this business model, uh, when it comes to the implementation of this stuff, I think the business models that are designed around growing to order, you know, controlling the clients, right, controlling the retail point, controlling the point of sale, controlling the distribution point, all based on your terms, we're at a point in our industry where we can all do that. Everybody, I think farmers in general are really, really incredibly nice people, you know, but, you know, they try too hard for people. And what I think you need to do is you need to instead say, this is a model and a situation that works really, really well for me. And then throw it out there. And it might not be right away, you know, where people are buying into that, you know, but it won't be long before, you know, people are going to accept you and how, you know, what it is you have to offer the way that you have to offer it. And you will have a successful business, you know, because from the beginning you designed it in such a way where it could actually work for you. I think it's a really important idea. And I really like this idea of, of what demand based, you know, that you've got, you've got the idea here that you're, the way you're doing it with the microgreens, you're selling them ahead of time. You're growing to order. I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to happen within this traditional CSA model, but I really do like that idea that you've, you know, you, you know, it's not just knowing where you're going to sell it, but it's knowing that it's sold. And I think that conceptually, I don't want to mislead people, right? It's not actually sold, you know, <laughs> like I've just created a model where I, you know, have stuff for my clients, right? So every Tuesday, every Friday, we, we harvest a bunch of stuff, but four to six weeks ago, you know, two to six weeks ago, we did plan based on what we think we were about to sell, right? So it doesn't, I don't want you to think that like a restaurant comes to me and says, I need arugula in two weeks. It doesn't work like that. They say, I need arugula today, but we've established a relationship with them where we now know how much arugula they want on a weekly basis. And it's going to fluctuate up or down or whatever. So I think that I'm not trying to say that we actually do specifically grow to order, but our farming mentality and the design of our farm is designed around that concept. I mean, I remember when I, when I worked at Harmony Valley Farm back in 1993, we had, we knew that every week we were going to sell 12 cases, 12, three pound cases of salad mix to Latoile restaurant, right? That was a basis that we could, that we could build everything else out on, you know, but we, we knew, we knew that we had a market for that and they were committed and they were every week. That's what they were taking. So it was easy to predict. So Greg, let's, let's just, let's take a few moments and talk about, um, in, in your farm design, this operations portion. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, critically important. I think good people, staffing and personnel is the hardest part of any small scale business operation. You know, if I was Bill Gates and I wanted to fund, you know, 
something la la land, you know, I'd throw a bunch of money at, uh, you know, farmer training and, and professional hiring services for farmers or something. I mean, it's that critically important and it's really, really not, it's really, really messed up. You know, I mean, there's amazing programs out there like, you know, was it UC Santa Cruz or, or Michigan state that has these you know, certificate programs or horticulture degree programs. But even you even get great kids out of that, try to throw them in a farming environment, they're going to flounder, right? Because it's, it's, it's such a results driven business. So we've had a lot of luck pulling, uh, pulling from restaurants because the, um, the workflow and the intensity of the work is very, very similar. They're both very low. Um, you don't, you know, it's very easy to get into both businesses, right? Um, even without degrees or, or even a resume for most sometimes, right? You can get into both businesses and they're both very, very intense and very, very results deliverable oriented, right? You know, so that is, you know, definitely a way to, to find a, you know, potentially a talent pool is there's a lot of chefs that care about food. They bring a lot of value to you because they bring this culinary expertise. They're used to really, really long, days and hot kitchens and the fact that, you know, you're not allowed to leave until the job's done. Right. So I think there is something, there is something to that, but I think staff is, is the hardest thing. And I, I will, I wish I was better at it because it's, it's definitely the most difficult part of, of my operation, you know? And then I think that something you and I have talked a lot about when it comes to operation is, is really intentional decision-making. And the way that I talk about this on, on my farm is, is I'll say, um, Hey, you're about to put a tag into a tray. You know, every time you're about to do something, it's a decision. Every decision you make is an opportunity. So if you put the tag in the center of the tray, that can mean one thing. You put the tag in the front right of the tray, that can mean something else. You lay it flat on the tray, that can mean something totally different. Right? So even this dumb thing, like putting a tag in a tray, you suddenly create this amazing opportunity. And if you standardize how that happens for everybody, right, then you have the ability to do that. So um, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, every we, we update price sheets very, very frequently because we want chefs to feel like the price of our stuff is, you know, does go up and down with the market. When Orac seed goes from $30 a pound to $90 a pound, I want to be able to charge more for Orac, right? So we send out price sheet updates frequently. I mean, most people do once a year or something, which I don't agree with. You should send them out frequently, right? And then we've said, well, why don't we, when we do a price change update, we'll send them out on a, you know, fluorescent green price sheet, right? Cause they get a price sheet, you know, every time we deliver, they're getting a price sheet. So why don't we you know, differentiate that in some way? Right. And the decision there is, do you put white paper or green paper into the copier, <laughs> you know, but every right. decision that you make is an opportunity to make uh, an operational uh, decision. So I think that's important. I think that then uh, incremental and continuous improvement. Um, the personality type that doesn't work on my farm is someone who comes in and, and takes any sort of feedback as negative feedback, right? I can't say that I've never in my life made a farm employee cry, right? Um, but it's really, really hard for me as a business owner to say, hey, you know, next time you do that, I need you to do it this way and then for someone to cry, right? Because if we can't be in a situation where we're trying to get incrementally better every moment, right, then and I don't know how else to do that because our farming situations are really, really intense. So I think how you train people is really, really important. And this goes back to the productivity and muscle, muscle memory is that if you've, if you've never seen a 1500 square foot greenhouse put out $15,000 of microgreens, you probably can't relate to what that looks like. If you want to come to my place, we'll show you. Right. But what I think is, is, is interesting about that is that the people that do it, actually do get it. And it takes them months, like you're saying, three years to harvest lettuce to get it. But once they're there, they're there. So we have to figure out a way to document that. So in your time management thing, you talked about, you know, plan do lists and operating procedures actually being more of the directives. And I love the idea and something we're implementing on our farm for your presentation is, is a farm map where if something needs to be done in the garden, we just have these standard forms that are sitting on the shelf. We grab it off 
big marker. We just circle plant number, you know, plant a bed number eight, and then write on it what it is that they need to do. These these your you know these directives or or operating procedures. But the thing that's that I think is also really important is to show production. Right. And that's really, really hard. So um, one of the things that we're doing on the farm right now is actually taking these YouTube videos. Right. And says, hey, you know, we're about to fill 100 trays. Right. We've calculated how many trays we need of all these different things. We have our sewing sheet. We've prepared our station, you know, and this is the method that we do. And then you take a video of someone cranking through it and then you set a benchmark. We say, look, we know that we can fill, you know, 100 trays in 35 minutes. Right. And even though the first person coming in on the first day can't do that, I know that I can do it. You know, I know that my staff can do it. Right. But if someone has no concept of what that is, they don't know how badly they're performing if they don't know what a good performance looks like. Right. So what we're trying to do is actually take the key operations of our farm, the washing, the, the sewing, the harvesting, and actually making these, you know, operational how you know, internal how to videos that show how we do these different things, but show it in an informative way, but then also show it at a full production speed. So someone comes to the farm, you know, maybe there's a volunteer or somebody and there's a, you know, Hey, go ahead and fill a hundred trays. Right. You know, what you do is you, you forward them the YouTube link and you say, watch this link, come back and find me in 15 minutes and ask me any questions. Right. So before you've even started a conversation with the person, before you even started training them, you've already shown them a video on how it is that they can do it. But far more importantly, you've also shown them, you know, you define success, you define production, you've shown them what things look like on an actual production scale. The best example I can give of this is, is Jack Algier at the Stone Barn Center, definitely one of the best farmers in the country, right? And, uh, and, and we were out there doing, you know, doing some tool development stuff with Elliot and you know, Adam Lemieux from Johnny's and folks and stuff like that. And he, he was talking about a broad fork and he was in his greenhouse. And uh, he was talking about how you use a broad fork and he was showing it and talking about the fact that you push it in and you pull it back and then you drag it, you don't lift it and, and these different things. And I said, you know, Jack, you know, can, I, can, you, can you show me how you do that at full speed? And he's just like, ha, 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 you want me to work? I'm like, no, Jack, please, <laughs> right? And he's a great guy and of course he did. And it changed my opinion completely of broad forking. I'd never in my life, even though I've been selling the tool for years, really seen someone do it at a production speed. And I went home and I, you know, two weeks later I broad forked the garden and I did it in half the time that I used to do it. I was just doing it wrong. I didn't know what success looked like. So I think when we train people, that's important. And I think when you train people, you don't train them on how you do it now. You train them on how you want your best practice to be. So say you have an employee leaving and they're training the new employee. If they train that new employee on where you're at, that new employee isn't going to be able to perform like your old employee. They just can't, right? It's going to take them some time. But if my new employee trains them on best practices, meaning, man, I really wish that we did it this way. So I'm going to teach you as this the way that I wish we would do it, right? When that person comes in, they're still not going to be able to meet that. But in theory, hopefully they've come a lot closer or maybe even that they've exceeded it, but you've at least set the standard. So I think one of the best things in a small company is, 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 is when people do enter and leave. It's very, very tumultuous, but it's also an, a tremendous opportunity for you to literally redo what it is that you do. You know, a small business, everybody wears hats. So you have a new person that comes in and they happen to have a graphic design background. You try to figure out how to fit them into that operation. But then as those roles responsibilities shift around the team, it's also an opportunity to literally, you know, hit a reset button every time someone enters and leaves an operation to then work yourself closer to the way it is that you actually want to be, not where you're at. Greg, this is great. I, I think I, I just I love those really those some really, really practical tips about how to how to implement good design on your 
in your farm. Thank you so well, much. Let me give you an example, like record keeping. You know, you were joking around about you know uh, about an app for record keeping, right? And people, what do you say? The reason people have a record keeping app is they don't want to do record keeping. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. For, for me, I think about it differently. I think about it in the context of you know record keeping has to be built into the system. It can't be an afterthought. So um, going back to benchmarks. So in our greenhouse operation, we have a benchmark of for three minutes per tray to harvest, right? So in three minutes, you have to take a tray from wherever it is in the greenhouse. You have to harvest it. You have to pack it into a bag, get it into the refrigerator, compost that tray. You have to record the yield of that tray and the date of that tray that was sown. So we talk about benchmarks, how we actually pull off three minutes a tray is that it's built into our system. We have a we have a tray that we put down on the ground, like a little stool, like a large step stool that's right at kind of the height of our knees. And then we put our scale on top of that. And then we put our harvest bin on top of that. And then we tar out our scale. So we have a scale that can handle the capacity of a bin and the product. And then you stand over it with these grass trims. As you're trimming these trays and the product is falling in, you're weighing it as you go. So, hey, I need to do 25 trays of arugula. The reality is those are all probably from the same date, right? So I'm going up there. So I know my date. I harvest all 22 into the bin, right, or one or two have bins, whatever it takes. And then all I have to do is look down before I pick up the bin, and I've got my weight, and I just got to write down the weight in a plant tag. Right, and then I try to capture that data in the most meaningful way possible. We've been doing it by hand recording it, and we're we're now switching over to Google Docs, so that even if we don't deal with our data right now, we're at least capturing our data in electronic form. But that's very very simple information. But what it allows me to do as a grower is, to, you know, hey, it's May, you know, and someone will come and say, hey, on July fifteenth, I need twenty pounds of arugula for a wedding. But what I do is I bring out the binder from last year, and I look at the July, you know, July fifteenth harvest date, and then I go backwards and I try to, you know, I figure out where the sow date was for it. So if I say, oh, this was two weeks before right. July 15th, I need to do this on July 1st. What I actually do, right, is I'll plant a third of what I need, you know, or maybe 40% of what I need, you know, at the end of June, 40% on July 1st, and then 40% on like July 4th, right? And that way I'm kind of covering my bases. But if I didn't have that data, it'd be really important. So I also think that data is really, really important early on and becomes a lot less important as you go. And as your operation gets bigger and bigger and bigger, sometimes it's harder and harder to collect that data effectively. So I think that that first year is really, really important. So when you start, you know, it's like economics for a second. When you start a farm, you know, you put together a business plan and it's all just guesses. You know, I love talking about farm economics. I, I do a great farm economics presentation, right? That, you know, I try, to, I try to teach farm economics without talking about math because the second you talk about math, you lose everybody, right? But you need to come up with a plan. And I think that where people are getting it wrong is they don't take educated guesses. You might not know what your monthly electricity bill is, you know, in your greenhouse, but take a guess, right? You're not going to be that far off. You're not going to be off by an order of magnitude. And over time, you can refine it. So you start with some sort of a financial plan. And I would, I would hope that you've had been at other farms and have mentors or people or hired someone like you to help them kind of figure out that plan so you're not starting from, from a point of, of naivety, I guess. Then when you go to your implementation, you then do the stuff in Iowa State, I guess, calls them the crop enterprise budgets. Right? I learned it from John Veeringbaum and Adam Montre at Michigan State in the context of dollar per square foot weeks, right? But that you do actually then really, really run your numbers. So an example of my greenhouse is that every tray is 1.57 square feet. It's a 1020 tray. A 1020 tray actually takes up 10 and three quarter inches by 21 inches. And although it doesn't seem like a big deal, it's a really freaking big deal if you're designing your greenhouse around a 10 by 20 tray that's actually 21 inches long. So all of our benches are 63 inches, for example. So I, when I learned dollar per square foot weeks from Adam and John, 
right? I then applied that to my farm and I did basically a crop enterprise budget for every one of my crops. And I'm trying to teach my farm staff and in this dollar per square foot stuff. And I was just losing everybody. And I love math and I guess they don't love math as much as I do, right? And it was just a, a tough, tough translation. But then when I switched it, and I started talking about it per tray. I just multiplied out the 1.57 square feet to get it to trays. And I said, look, and then I figured it out. Here's my packaging cost per tray, my soil cost per tray, my seed cost per tray, my heating cost per tray, you know, my you know, payroll cost per tray. Every cost I could figure out on a per tray basis, I figured all that stuff out. And then all of a sudden the lights started going off for the staff because now we were talking about a module they could relate to. So right. if you were a gardener, for example, it might be a hundred foot bed, right? And now that's your module, right? So now now you need to have your benchmarks per module. For me, it's a tray. For you, it can be 100 foot of beds, right? But then you really do give a go at it, right? So I build a simple, you know, Excel model with nothing more complicated than plus, minus, times, and divide, where I can put in the number of trays that I harvested and how many hours it took me to harvest, and I, it, it kind of spits out a profitable or not. And I ran it both from, you know, what's my profit per crop based on my current yields, and then what yields would I need to do at my current price point to hit my financial metrics. And through that whole process, I just came up with a number. I realized that my target number is roughly, you know, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of a couple dollars per square foot. I need to generate a couple dollars per square foot of revenue on every, in, in my, on the benches in my greenhouse. If I don't hit that number, I don't plant it. Elliot's got the same number, his own little benchmark number. If you can't hit a certain thing in a linear, you know, 30 inch wide bed for linear feet, he doesn't do it. So you, you kind of find your number, your target number. Once you have your target number for per square foot, then you, it's really, really easy because you can then say, well, arugula took four weeks. Did I hit my target number based on my yield and my price? Right. And then you can look at it. So I did this whole analysis and luckily for me, I had some good teachers out of the 32 crops that I did, 27 of them, I didn't change the price on, but red vein sorrel, I was getting slaughtered and I dropped it the next day. I was losing money growing red vein sorrel and I immediately dropped it. Even chefs for Matt doesn't matter. I can't lose money as a farmer. Dropped it. Cold Turkey, goodbye red vein sorrel. I've since figured out how to do it, but back then goodbye red vein sorrel. Right. And then, and then the other thing is just, I realized, wow, you know, golden popcorn shoots, this is a moneymaker for me. Right. So I went ahead and actually dropped that price a little bit. Right. And then on the, some of the other stuff, I raised the prices up for it to do it. And I was able to create a simple thing that said, you know, what's my economics for, you know, both directions, meaning what yield do I need at this price point? And based on the yield that I'm getting now, what does my price point have to be? So we're talking about crop enterprise budgets, right? And, and, and I, I did that very, very intensively for about three months. I really deep dived and looked at my numbers for about three months. And that really kind of taught me how to price my stuff, you know, what success looked like as far as yield per tray, et cetera, et cetera. And to be honest, I haven't really done that very much since. About every maybe three to four months, I'll sit down for half an hour and I'll rerun a, a harvest through the model. But I don't do that a lot anymore because now that I'm operating, it all happens through the chart of accounts on my accounting software. So we're very, very intelligent about our chart of accounts. We have a lot of accounts, a lot more than our accountant wants us to have. But we want to be able to think about the difference between labor for cleaning versus labor for harvesting versus labor for meetings. We want to differentiate the input cost of our soil versus other inputs amendments. We want to think about pest and disease control differently than rodent control, right? And then basically every quarter or once a year or however frequently you do it, you now can basically be checking 
all of your math versus your chart of accounts. So as you walk through this process, you start with a plan, you just take educated guesses where you don't know, you rely on intelligent people to do a six-figure farming operation. I would absolutely recommend hiring a consultant like me or Chris Blanchard or you know, Jean-Martin Fortier up in Canada or Michael Kilpatrick, somebody like that, to help you come in and design the farm. Once you're up and going, I mean, you got to pick your module, a way to look at your math. And in my, again, it's a, it's a tray versus a 10 foot versus a hundred foot bed. And then you do, you know, you look at some analysis and I call that modular based mathematics, right? You pick your module and then you, you define a way to easily look at that. And that's really about figuring out a simple way to do the model. If that's a complicated step, you're doing it wrong. And then once you're up and operating, you can handle a tremendous amount through your chart of accounts. And there really what you're shooting for there is you got to know your target margin, right? Every farmer needs to know the difference between a margin and a markup, you know, and farm economics class, we talk about, uh, you know, three ways, you know, how $3,000 can lose you six, right? And, and we say, you know, if you're making a 20% margin and you go to a farmer's market and you bring an extra $1,000 worth of stuff that doesn't get sold, that costs you 800 bucks. Your cost is 800 and your margin would have been 200. So that costs you $800. If you under deliver by $1,000 of produce, that only costs you your profit. You only lost $200. So when you over-deliver, you lost 800. When you under-deliver, you lost 200. Now, if you really were to lose a thousand bucks, you know, and an easy way for a farmer to do that is to not collect, not receive the money that they're they're supposed to get, or you freeze out a greenhouse or something, you know, lose a cooler or something. You really just lose money at 20%. You have to sell $5,000 of vegetables to make up a thousand dollars of loss. So there's three different scenarios that each cost you a thousand bucks, right? Thousand dollars out the door actually costs you offset five thousand dollars of revenue. Over delivering by a thousand dollars costs you eight hundred bucks, and under under delivering by a thousand dollars only costs you two hundred, right? So we're talking about owning your clients and doing this different stuff. We have a rule of thumb where we just say, hey, we're going to overgrow by like ten percent, and then you know we might short a chef some arugula because we didn't grow enough, but usually there's something else there. There's a Tokyo bacana or peas or something else that we can kind of throw in, right, to kind of to kind of make it all work. So growing excess is also difficult. So when you see these farm farmers packing up after farmers markets, bringing that stuff home, it just breaks my soul. You know, 50% of the produce grown in Missouri does not end up getting eaten. You know, and I think that we need to be thinking about um, efficiency also in the context of waste and excess, right? And make sure that we're getting that part of the equation correct as well. Greg, I'm feeling really excited uh, at, after after hearing you talk about this for for the potential for for somebody to really think things through and really I, I love I love all of this and the way it comes back to this intentional decision making and I just want to I kind of want to close on that concept there of of I mean everything you've talked about today um, I mean from from where we started with your passion for skill based service all the way through talking about how much product to take to farmers market I think it's such a, I, I just, I, I want to come back to that intentional decision-making. And I just think that's to me, that term and the way that you've implemented that is really inspiring. Thank you so much. Well, Chris, and I just, you know, as a person who's, you know, looked up to you for a long time and seen the wonderful things that you've been able to do in this space and to now know that you're doing, you know, things like this with the intention of helping people. I mean, this is, Literally, your podcast in its own way is, is a perfect example of how you're using your skills to make a difference in this space. So I think that we share that passion, and it's fun to, it's fun to have a colleague that, uh, that you know, really looks at this thing in an analytical way at all four different types of sustainability, right? but then has also got the heart to be willing to share this. So I just personally appreciate who you are and what it is that you're doing, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Greg. Have a great day. 
All right. Bye, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 17 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show. All the links to a lot of the at least a lot of the things that Greg mentioned, I tried to get them all, are are available at the Farmer to Farmer podcast dot com. That's Farmer to Farmer podcast, all spelled out dot com. And you go there, you look on the episodes page or you just search for Garbos, which is G-A-R-B-O-S, and you'll find links to the books, to the resources, to the to the various companies uh, and, and even some of the people that Greg mentioned during the talk during his his interview today. If you're not already listening to this show on iTunes, Stitcher or the podcast app of your choice, I encourage you to subscribe to get the new episodes just as soon as they're released. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or a review on iTunes. The more fresh comments we get, the higher it drives the show in the iTunes ratings, which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or at purplepitchfork.com, where there's more information and resources for the consulting and education work that I do outside of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this show. It's really a pleasure to be able to do these, and and I've I've certainly enjoyed it. The feedback that we're getting is really great. I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. Take care. Have a great week and keep the tractor running.